murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. Welcome back to True Law Stories. I'm Garlic here, and today we're going to talk with my friend, a local, uh, amazing federal criminal defense attorney, a ton of history, former federal prosecutor, and the founder of Horowitz Citro Law Firm, uh, Mark Horowitz. Thank you for very much for being on the show. Thank you, Ian. It's my pleasure. Good to see you again. Always a pleasure to see you. Mark's an awesome guy. I mean, incredible, incredible attorney. Google his name, you'll find tons of cases that he's uh, tried both as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney. Um, but before we get started, and you're going to tell a couple stories, very emotional stories, one about a kidnapping and one about a trial of a husband and wife. But let's talk a little bit about your background first. I mean, because you have a very interesting background. How did you get into law? <laughs> well, how I got into law was... Uh as a youngster visiting with my uncle, who uh, was a lawyer, he's now passed, he was a lawyer in Lake Worth, Florida. He was the last lawyer, uh, among the, the last year that a lawyer could become a member of the bar by graduating from a, uni uh, from a Florida law school, which at the time there were only three. Uh, and uh, so those days are gone. You, now, now you gotta take the, bar exam, but just, uh, I would visit with him on occasion through growing up and kind of got in my mind. It looked interesting and that's what I wanted to do. So I went to, uh, UF and got a bachelor's degree in business administration and went to law school there. And then you went to work for the U S government. How was that as a federal that, prosecutor? That, yes, it was, uh, it was very, I enjoyed every day. Let's put it that way. It was a, it was an awesome experience. I kind of fell into the job coming off active duty in the army, and uh, wound up being uh, and being assigned to the office in Orlando, Florida. Although I did try cases in in Tampa for the federal government and in and in Jacksonville. So it was. Uh, like I said I enjoyed every day of it. Uh, it's a, a lot of responsibility. Uh, you feel like you, you know, you're you're representing the United States of America. That's a big responsibility. And after I left, I went into that. I went into criminal defense, and I still believe that in the Constitution, and and I have a responsibility to my clients to make sure that they get the effective representation, especially when you see your name on an indictment that says United States of America versus. If that doesn't get you nervous, nothing will. Oh, yeah. Ugh. <laughs> that's, that's scary to say the least. Um, and over the years, you've seen a lot, obviously, um, ups and downs. Uh, and, you know, let's get into the story. So you're telling about a kidnapping story that happened while you're a prosecutor. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm going to tell you the facts of the case. Generally, the case was it was a kidnapping of a five year old girl who the family, which consisted of the mother and the father and their daughter, uh, were on coming down on vacation and staying at a Daytona Beach uh, motel on the, on the 
And so actually on the, they could walk out of the hotel and there they were on the beach. So the, the young girl was kidnapped and then we had a trial. So I'm going to relate to you the facts as I learned them uh, a little bit behind the scenes information. And the case was a, was probably the most emotional trial that I've ever been involved with. Uh, and at the same time, that was, that, that was half the trial. The other half of the trial was the technical issues involved because the defendant claimed insanity as his defense. So what I'm going to tell you now is the evidence that came out at the trial. Uh, this young, the family pulled up into, the father was driving, pulled into the hotel, the, mot- the hotel on the ocean, got out of the car, summer day, still warm, left the engine running with his wife in the front passenger seat, the daughter in the back. He goes into the hotel. As fate would have it, a guy who had just gotten out of prison about three or four weeks before then comes across and sees the car running, jumps into the car and push opens the door and pushes the mother out of the car. She is barefooted, but her daughter is still in the back seat, at which point he starts to drive away and the mother starts running after him with no shoes on, late mid-afternoon, burning her feet, screaming, just give me my baby. Just give me my baby back. Gone. I then got a call later that day from the FBI, an FBI agent who had been assigned this matter in uh, Daytona Beach. The normal, the normal procedure would be that 24 hours has to go by to make the assumption that this was, this, there was a crossing of a state line. And this agent had dealt with me and some of the other lawyers in the office and tried to get a warrant to get the feds involved as early as possible. And the assistant refused because the 24 hours hadn't passed. Uh, This is an example of me violating the policy, but I said, come on over, you're gonna get your warrant. So we got the warrant and he came in, we filled out the complaint, unknown defendant got and has proceeded. I told him, go ahead, you got it. So that's a little aside. And then of course, this went out. It, be, had, it was uh, national news, you know, very emotional. You know, it was on the news, and it just so happened. I think it was three days later. In Charleston, South Carolina, the shift comes in the morning shift, and they get a briefing. The police get a briefing of what's new. What do you What do you look out for? And one of the and they're all there. That shift is sitting there, and the sergeant comes in, and apparently he had not seen it yesterday, the day before. He comes in and says, "Be on the lookout for a kidnapped victim, 
five-year-old girl and she was in the car and they had, of course, the description of the car and the license plate on the car. The, uh, the cops go out, they take, they are on their job and lo and behold, one of the, one of the policemen in the briefing comes up to a red light and notices the car in front of him is the car. And he notices a driver and a little girl in the back. He gets out of his car, the light's still red. He's parked right behind the kidnap victim and the car. He walks over to the driver's side, raps on the window and makes a motion to roll the window down, lower the window. The driver, the defendant, ultimately the defendant in the case, looks at him and speeds off. That's significant. Thereafter, a high-speed chase through the streets of Charleston occurs. And ultimately, the kidnapper takes a wrong turn, meaning he goes into an alley. So one of the other police officers blocks the exit to the alley and the chasing officer is behind him. So the kidnapper gets to the end of the alley and he can't get any further because the other police car is blocking his exit straight ahead. That police officer jumps he has jumped out of his car when he saw him coming, jumps onto the hood, has his pistol pointed right at the head of the kidnapper. Meanwhile, the second officer comes up behind the car, gets right behind it, puts his car in park, jumps out of the car, runs over to the side where the little girl is, knocks on the window and points to the lock. And this is as the explained by and as testified by the officer. Both hands, she lifts the lock. He opens the door. She, he reaches for her. She, she jumps into his arms, screaming, "Save me! Save me! Save me!" When I interviewed the officer, and when he came down to Orlando for the trial, he broke out crying. I teared up and it was so emotional. So just like that, this unsolved case is solved and the little girl was not harmed. And when I told that story, which was what the evidence would show to the jury, my memory is four or five of them were shedding a tear. When the mother testified, you know, you can imagine what she went through. The, the emotion level was hard to describe. But again, there was a lot of tears shed during that trial. And the, the little girl who reminded me, and I'm showing my age now, if you ever seen old Shirley Temple movies, <laughs> reminded me of, she, of, a, of a little Shirley Temple when she was a little kid. And uh, to the point where I think she was just turned five. Uh, she didn't know the difference between right or left. You know, what's what, what you yeah. And so I suggest, so the father 
who was not a who brought his daughter into the courtroom when it was her time to testify. I, uh, you know, we we understood that she didn't know right from left. So I said, well, you because but the clerk is going to say, raise your right hand to tell the truth. And so I told the father, just make sure you're holding his, her left hand. <laughs> 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 so he did. And, and she, you know, we, we spent a lot of time with her and, and she, you know, she told her story and the judge was satisfied that she knew the difference between truth and a lie. So then the second part of the case was the defense of insanity. Now that defense was disclosed long before the trial. And as a result of that disclosure, I filed a motion with the court asking, and of course the defendant was in custody at the time from, since his arrest, he had not been released on bond. I made a motion to have the court authorize me to send him to a federal prison that had a mental facility. It was a hospital, also a hospital, and for 90 days of observation and analysis. So that happened. He, he was sent off there. 90 plus days go by, he comes back. And for the trial, I bring the uh, psychologist down who was on the team that was evaluating him the, uh, to testify after the the defense put on its case, we would have rebuttal through the government's expert. And that that's how it went. The defense had him see a very well-respected psychologist in Central Florida who went to the jail and spent about 90 minutes with him and said that he was, he met the definition of being legally insane. So in relation to my cross-examination of the defense expert, I zeroed in on certain factors. One was how much time did he have to spend with the defendant? He said 90 minutes compared to my expert who spent 90 days. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that was one big difference. Another was that through to my... Uh, government psychologist, we went over the tests that the psychologist for the defense had given. And he pointed out to me that man could not possibly have given all the tests. The psychologist could not have used all the tests as they were required to use the full test because you couldn't do them in five hours, never mind 90 minutes. So that was one of my methods of cross-examining, I had the doc, because that wasn't his report. He had to admit that, yeah, this test takes three, two hours, and I spent 25 minutes on it, you know? So once through each of the tests that he gave, showing clearly that he didn't give the full test. And then that, I thought, was discrediting to his opinion. And then I brought back certain things that happened during the arrest. I said, well, and basically, he didn't know the difference between right and wrong and couldn't conform to, well, the difference between right and wrong. So, so I asked a question, Not this is not verbatim, but basically, so what, is it your testimony that when the police officer walked up to the defendant and asked him to roll down the window, 
looking at the police officer's uniform, and instead of rolling down the window, he sped off and engaged in a high-speed chase. Do you think he didn't know that what he was doing was wrong when he ran away from the police officer? Now, what's he going to say to that? <laughs> if he says yes, he knew, then he's, he's, that deflates his, the value of his testimony. If he says no, he didn't know. Who's going to believe him? Why do you run away from a police officer if you don't think you're doing something wrong? Mm. So that's that's how that went. And ultimately, it went to the jury. And again, there were a lot of teary eyes going over the first part of the case about what this family went through and everybody imagining the horror of chasing a car with your daughter in the back seat, just screaming, give me my baby. Oh. Amazing. So. And he was convicted. So, uh, and who was who the psychologist, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I'd rather not say. Okay. No, that's all right. That's all right. I gotcha. I, uh, I can tell you this. He, he wrote a book and he said that cross-examination was the worst he's ever been in. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I'm asking is because I took uh, some forensic psychology classes here in Central Florida. And I, I'm wondering if he was my professor because he was a uh, well-known <laughs> Uh, we, we can talk about that off the record. Um, you know, how often does the, I mean, how often is that used? The, you know, the ins, insanity defense. You know, I don't keep statistics on it. It's a tough defense. And it really, like all cases, the evidence is, is there. It's, or it's not there. And, and uh, you know, it, sometimes it's hard, even if somebody is, is mentally off, that doesn't mean they meet the definition of insanity. And in the federal court, if you don't know the difference between right and wrong, or if you do know, you can't confirm, confirm your, con your conduct, you just can't follow the, what is required, even though you know it's required. And so, you know, it's, it's a tough defense because, you know, people, it, it's subject to being abused, but sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And so, you know, and how was it to switch over from being a prosecutor and obviously being a fervent prosecutor and, uh, you know, going after people like this to being on the other side and defending people? I get to ask that on occasion. And the answer is, as a government lawyer, I believed I had a client and that client was the United States of America. And I believe in the the justice system in this country, which requires that the defendant and the government have good, competent, ethical lawyers. And that's how I conducted myself. And when I left and started representing people, I felt the same way. I am as much a part of the justice system as I was as a prosecutor. I tried many cases. Every case that I tried, I believed that the police were telling me the truth. On a very rare occasion that I can count on one hand, I caught an agent lying to me and I killed a case and I said, don't come back to me. To ask me to prosecute a case that you have anything to do with. So that, but when I went to the other side, you know, I also know that 
people make mistakes. As a prosecutor, I felt confident that I had a good case and I could prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I was never motivated by other factors, although I've seen on the news over the years that sometimes other factors come into it. Publicity, promotion, whatever. Mm-hmm. And those, and the, the other part of it is, and that that's needs to be fought, but the other part of it is you know, law enforcement officers and prosecutors like everybody else. They make mistakes. They can make mistakes. I'm not saying they make mistakes all the time, but they can make mistakes. And when those mistakes are made, if defense counsel doesn't do what is what the defense counsel needs to do, that is effective, knowledgeable representation, our system doesn't work. So, you know, that's that's the reality of it, and I've always believed it. Now, I've I've had represented people that uh, sometimes a case is not. A trial is a waste of time because the evidence is overwhelming. But that's not the end of the story because especially in the federal system, the sentences are outrageous. And as a result of that, you know, you you have to understand that if the evidence is not there, and I, I believe in trying a case if there is a triable issue, there's some weakness in the government's case that if the jury believes you get a not guilty verdict. But if that doesn't exist, and, and sometimes it doesn't, then even if you go to trial and lose or you plead guilty, it's damage control. Would you rather spend 30 years in prison or five years in prison? That's a big difference, right? Mm-hmm. I, and, and It's a huge difference. <laughs> yeah, and, and I've had that. I had that in, in numerous cases where pretty much every tax case that the, my clients have followed, criminal tax case in which they followed my advice, some I've gotten probation over bigger subjection by the government, other times, but I can also say that I've not had a case in which the government got what they asked for in a case in which the client had followed my advice. So it's a, the meaning they got a lesser sentence. Yeah. And you were going to talk about a husband and wife that were, you know, pretty much law-abiding citizens, correct? And then got yeah. in some trouble. Yes. Uh, I represented a couple, a husband and wife, who were under investigation by the Internal Revenue Service criminal agents. And that investigation centered around their business. They had a very successful retail business. And they came to me, and and IRS criminal agents are very thorough. Their cases take a long time to develop. And by a long time, two years, three years, four years. Now, that doesn't mean it's constant during that time period. It's not, but it comes, you know, their activity. they get active, then they wind up doing something else, then they come back to it. So literally, it takes a long time. Well, these people have been under investigation, as I recall, in excess of three years, going on four years, in another in Tampa, and they had a lawyer who I know is a a good lawyer, and they he had worked 
a deal whereby if the husband pled guilty and they were in the business together, the wife would not be charged. And that's not uncommon uh, in, in relation to dealing with the federal government. And so that was, uh, they came to me, they told me about what was going on and what the investigation was and what the deal was. And I said to him, you know, I, I'm not going to get you a better deal than that. So you don't need to change lawyers. If you want to go to trial, call me. <laughs> and they did. They, they called and they said, we've decided to go to trial. And so the uh, tax cases are somewhat complex. And in this particular, what, one of the things that happens is the government basically will get they have to prove that there was tax due, right? There was, for a tax evasion case, and that's what they usually do. They're usually not going to prosecute somebody for tax evasion if there's no tax due. So that's what they were doing. And they had, according to the government, obtained every bank record, every financial record available they had. And they needed to do that because they were recreating income. And the contention was that income was unreported. So that's, that's where we started from. And then during the course of a case, the defense is provided with all of the exhibits that the government intends to use. One of the things that I, and the government always has in these cases, two different two different uh, agents working with the prosecutor. One is the, the criminal agent, who call, often called the case agent, and the other is a revenue agent, that is an, a, a non-criminal employee, a non-criminal agent, like, a, like if you get an audit, right? And, and that person comes up with the numbers, and the numbers meaning this is the undisclosed income. This is the tax consequence, underpayment of tax. And so we had received prior to trial, they said all of the exhibits, all of the documents concerning my client that had been obtained by the government, including according to them, every, every bank transaction they've had over the last five years. And so I deal with uh, an experienced forensic accountant who was a, in the past was a revenue officer, that is a civil agent, and then was a criminal agent for the IRS. And I hire her as my accountant to assist in analysis of what the IRS is doing. So I make numerous requests and I am told that I have all the records. For some reason, I don't have three months worth of bank account records. And you know, one of the issues is, let's say you have money going into the bank. If that money is, is from a non-taxable source, like a gift or a loan or transfer from one account to the other, uh, 
that puts a big hole and they don't have that information. They, the government doesn't have it. It puts a big hole in their case. So when we started the trial and, and I, I kept asking for it and they say, you got it, you got it, you got it. Okay. So we start the trial and they call the criminal agent who went out and got all the records. Right. And so he, he talks on direct, he testifies by answering the government lawyer's questions. And basically I have it all. It's all here. So on cross-examination, now this is I think the third day, fourth day into the trial. I start my cross and, and go into how careful he was and how he made sure he got all the records and how he needed the records in order to compute the actual so that the revenue officer could compute the income correctly and the tax. So then I said, okay, well, would you get me this month, this month, and this month from that account? This is no problem. You want it now? So yeah, I want it now. Your Honor, may step down <laughs> to the bench and find it? He spent an agonizing 40 minutes looking for it. Oh my gosh. That's a long time with a jury staring. Yeah. <laughs> At which point, he says, I can't find it. The government lawyer stands up and asks for a recess. And uh, he comes back an hour later saying, can we continue this case till tomorrow or the next day? So the case is continued. And the next day, I get a another summary that I that's from the IRS as to the amount un, of uh, unreported income and the tax. And it's been changed. And it's been changed by the fact that the amount of tax is now lowered. Now this is that they've been working on it for four years, right? Mm -hmm. And so then we, the, the agent comes back and the agent has to admit he doesn't have them. He has no indication that he ever had them. And he wow. had to admit that he needed that to be to, to conduct a thorough investigation. And an accurate conclusion as to tax. So then there was a couple other witnesses. And the next day I got another summary by the revenue officer, again, lowering the tax. The next day, I got it. He starts on direct. When they finally get to the revenue officer, he's going on direct. And I think he spent a day, a day and a half on direct. And I started on cross. And we ended the day. And the next, before the next day started, I got another summary again, lowering the tax. That happened one more time. I, I took a day and a half or two days on cross-examination and I went over with him the reason why he changed, that when he did the first one, he thought it was right. He changed the, the second one, he changed because he, the third one he changed and the fourth one. I said, and you changed these four changes that you've made are as a result of your answering my questions on cross-examination and the cross-examination of some of the other witnesses. He had to say yes. Oh. So then, this case was in Tampa. We're driving back to Orlando with my 
accountant and I said to her, they're going to come up with something else. <laughs> we, we know it. They're going to come up with something else. And, and so I said to her, you got to find it. And my goodness, the next day driving back, she said, this is what they're going to say. So I, he, does, he did. And, and, and I got another one, another summary, which again, lowered the tax. But still, it was enough to, if they believed it, to get a conviction. So, and, I, what, and what kind of conviction were they facing at the beginning of it? And you know what, you know, as far as like time in prison, what, what could happen to them? Oh, there was each count, and there were, and I believe there were two counts, two years, was up to five years in prison. So that's a, looking at ten years. Wow. And when you got kids that are six, seven, eight, that's and both parents in prison. Yeah, that's and scary. That's scary. And so, <laughs> the way I ended the cross examination after debunking the other change that he had, I said, "So, you're, it would be fair to say that." And I went through each of the five changes. Okay, I said, "Would it be fair to say that?" You have created this last and final summary of the tax deficiency and unreported income with the same care and attention to detail as you did the first four that you gave us. <laughs> <laughs> he said, yes. <laughs> so, the, the, the jury went out and deliberated with not guilty. Wow. And this was probably the most emotional verdict I've seen by my client, the husband, who was not only under the pressure of himself going to prison, but knowing that he could have taken a deal and his wife could have stayed around and wait, raised the kids, right? He dropped to his knees in that courtroom praying and thanking God. And, and it, was, it was so touching. I can and, imagine. And, and it just so happened that I probably about three, three years ago, and this case was many years before then, I was at a function in the federal courthouse where we were swearing in one of the new federal magistrates. And the federal judge who tried that case that I just described was there uh, afterwards while we were having hors d'oeuvres and refreshments after the ceremony. And he said, you know, I still remember that verdict. <laughs> it was still the most emotional verdict I've ever seen. And that's, so even though it's a, the case itself was basically a boring numbers case because of the errors in the IRS agents and the civil and criminal in their work product, the result was not guilty verdicts for both and the I, I like to say that I leave no stone unturned in defending a client just like I left no stone unturned representing the United States you know, and you just if, if the lawyer doesn't do that and hadn't found what I found they would have been convicted yeah oh so finding it and then knowing how to use it, like, is this prepared with the same care and attention to detail as you did in your first four? Yeah. <laughs> What's the answer to that? There is no good answer for him, from him on that. 
And yeah, I mean, both these cases too, it's, it's asking the right questions. It's not just knowing the information. It's how you present it, isn't it? And that's interesting. And how did, you know, how did you feel after that? Well, you know, you don't like to, you don't like to lose any case as a lawyer. I mean, I, and so I felt like I had a chance to win this. So I felt good about the win. And even more than that, I felt that my clients got with the justice that they deserved and, and their family wasn't ruined. And yeah. to me, that that's the best of all. You know, somebody like that. Yeah. And I mean, cause the, you know, we, we see these cases that, you know, people are being tried. And I think a lot of times we see p- cases where, you know, most of the time it's the person's pretty obviously guilty and it's a bad person. And that's what we see on TV. And that's why I like these stories because you don't realize how many people you're protecting who are good people that just happen to be in the bad place. It happens a lot, doesn't it? It, it does. I mean, it, you know, how exactly how many times, who knows? But those things do happen, and you get into complex white collar cases. Some of them are slam dunks. Some of them, the evidence is overwhelming. But others, the evidence—they may think the evidence is overwhelming, but only because they haven't really looked at what they've got and done a thorough investigation. And well, that's amazing. And you do great work. I mean, these are fantastic stories, Mark. I really appreciate you being on and, and telling these stories for us. Well, it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, there's sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Oh, that's exactly it. Exactly it. Some of these that you, you couldn't, you write these and people wouldn't believe them if they weren't true stories. Uh, they wouldn't make good movies because it's, (laughs) it's too crazy. Um, and if anyone, hopefully none of you ever need an attorney, but if you do need an attorney, you can go to HorowitzCitralLaw.com. Mark and Vince will also be on our fantastic attorneys, fantastic people. Obviously, work very hard and are very professional and are well-known in the legal community as some of the best out there. But Mark, uh, thank you very much for being on True Law Stories. My pleasure. It's good seeing you again. It's good. Always a pleasure to see you too. And thank you all for letting Mark take you on his journey. Uh, this has been Iron Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need Video Case Stories for your business. Go to VideoCaseStory.com to learn more.